met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Welcome, listeners, to another week with Habakkuk Walks Into a Bar. <laughs> we actually don't do this every week, or at least lately. No, not even close. It's been a while. Turns out the production uh, costs in the form of my time <laughs> are, are rather significant. <laughs> so it's kind of a pain in the butt to do uh, <laughs> on a very regular basis. <laughs> time is just uh, worth a lot, huh? Um, yes. <laughs> or my level of interest. No, and I don't know how much my time is worth, but, uh, it, and, and it's not easy necessarily knowing every week uh, if we have something worthwhile to say in the format of a one hour and 30 minute <laughs> video right. um, conference and not, um, you know, the format that really... I'm more accustomed to a, a lengthy and controversial Facebook post and yeah. yours of uh, rapping theological tweets on Twitter. <laughs> no, that's actually slowed down too. I feel like I've kind of uh, run out of material somewhat. Maybe you need to uh, move beyond Augustine. That's a source. Maybe. Anyway. So, you suggested, and I thought it would be a good idea, to, uh, we were both English majors. Um, you're an active writer of poetry and other stuff. That we should share five of our favorite poems. Um, Are we doing five or six? We'll do, we're doing six. <laughs> he said five. I interpreted that to mean six. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's kind of the way, like, we agreed on doing this at 4.30, but it's 5.30 now. We just, like, add numbers. Yeah. I mean, again, production costs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wish it was... Someday it's going to be that easy. We could just periscope these things. Um or something, like, with our I'm smartphones. Not, I'm not technologically savvy enough. Well, no, to... see, that's the thing. All you do is download an app, but then you're immediately live broadcasting it. And I'm not sure it's recorded. Okay. Um, anyway, so you want to alternate, or do you... How do we yeah, let's do alternate. Okay. And uh, I think it'll be good. You know, the person who has chosen a particular poem should talk about it a bit, but then... 
you know, the other, the other one can chime in some thoughts on it too. Sure. And, um, I'm going to invite you to, uh, a Google Word document that I made that just has kind of the text of the poems I had for your benefit. And cool. I will Google, do you think most of your poems are available? Yes. I have, I have like different windows pulled up with my poems. So I think they're all on the internet. Okay, cool. Shouldn't be an issue. Why don't you start us off? And, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess we're kind of open to the, the conversation that each one inspires. Um, are, or should there be strict parameters about Oh, no. Okay. Let's just keep it open. That's kind of what I think poetry is about, at least sometimes, is uh, a more open attitude toward reality than we're used to. So okay. that'll work. Right. Uh, surprisingly, so... Three of the poets I chose are, are somewhat contemporary. I think two are alive and one just died a couple years back. Um, but most of the poetry I've read in my life has been written like before, at least before the, you know, World War II, probably before the 20th century. But I've connected with, with some of the more uh, recent poets, I guess. So my first poem is by Mark Strand an American poet who is the one who died a couple of years back. And I'm going to read a poem called My Name. The five or six poems I chose are not necessarily my all-time favorite poems, mm -hmm. but they're like six of my favorites. Yeah. And uh, the other one I love by Mark Strand, which may be my favorite by him, is called Orpheus Alone, but it's longer so I'm just going to go with my name, uh, which I love, too. So here it is. Once when the lawn was a golden green and the marbled moonlit trees rose like fresh memorials in the scented air and the whole countryside pulsed with the chur and murmur of insects, I lay in the grass, feeling the great distances open above me and wondered what I would become and where I would find myself and though I barely existed, I felt for an instant that the vast star-clustered sky was mine. And I heard my name as if for the first time. Heard it the way one hears the wind or the rain, but faint and far off, as though it belonged not to me, but to the silence from which it had come and to which it would go. So that's My Name by Mark Strand. Um, I think... One reason I chose this poem is because it's typical of what I love about Mark Strand is that he he speaks to certain moments in our lives, at least in my life, when I've felt an almost unnameable connection to the transcendent and kind of a gentle, almost unnoticed moment of, uh, of having a sense of the beyond, of, of breaking out of the mundane. And um, I think this poem expresses that sense in a beautiful way. I love uh, toward the end when he talks about 
his name coming from the silence and going back to the silence. Um, I'm just reminded of times in my life when I looked up, you know, at the sky, at the stars, and felt my own smallness and my own briefness, but but also had a sense of connection with what's larger and what's permanent. Um, and aside from these big things, I just love the way Mark Strand uh, writes poetry with, I'm going to use some English major terms, if that's okay. He uses a lot of consonants and assonance, like repetition of certain vowel sounds and consonant sounds, like the chur and murmur of insects. I just love um, some of the beauty of his phrases. Uh, felt for an instant that the vast star-clustered sky was mine. What were you going to say? Yeah, I guess I, I, I wanted to dig into, like, in what how you kind of take the meaning of some of these things. And I felt for an instance that the vast star clustered sky was mine. Mm -hmm. Is is that like, what, what do you, th on, on the one hand that kind of feels like selfish mm -hmm. or like, uh, well, it's like yeah. there's, there's a play going on between his smallness and then his kind of appropriation of it all. Right. And then at the end, the, the word that, the, the thing that really I've I been turning over in my head ever since you read it was, um, I heard my name as if for the first time, heard it the way of one hears the wind or the rain, but faint and far off as though it belonged not to me, but to the silence. And mm -hmm. so like, what is the silence? Is it like ex nihilo? Is it like <laughs> the abyss, nothing? It's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure I have an answer, but I do want to comment on the tension you pointed out between him saying it, that the sky belonged to him versus his name did not belong to him. I, I think you're right to like to note that that's an important tension. And I, my sense is that this poem as a whole is actually not selfish or egotistical, but it's like a breaking out of the sense that everything belongs to me. So when he, like if his name is like the rain or the wind, it's like, it's almost <laughs> distant from him. Mm -hmm. and, and when he says the sky was mine, uh, I mean, I, I, I anyway read that as like because he's broken out of his small egotistical world he can say the word mine in a larger sense like it's not it's not just mine but because I'm I have this connection with what's beyond me there's a sense in which it's mine is that yeah I and I'm reading the beauty of the infinite so I'm probably seeing everything through that lens at the second yeah. but like it feels like the kind of cheap throwaway christian interpretation of this would be that it is somehow an, a proper appreciation of the glory of creation like mm. so in a sense if, if god gives us and, and gives everything all of creation as gift 
maybe yeah. in, in one sense, uh, you know, we, we are given the vision, we are given the um, ability to hear things so, so that those sensations do belong to us, kind of. And so yeah. if you're perceiving the sky and then, and then the silence in that point and this, you know, God is often associated with silence in some capacity. Yeah. So that that's instead of nothingness, or it could be, you know, I belong to God. Yep. Or that's where my name came from. But another another way to summarize it possibly is by becoming smaller, I become larger. Uh, you know, by by becoming aware of my briefness and the fact that I barely exist, I actually expand um, and have a sense of like the the greatness and grandeur of the universe. And my first instinct with all poems is to really like feel like I understand what they mean because I feel like that's the important thing. But um, to and so it it takes me a little longer to like appreciate. Uh, a lot of the stylistic mm. kind of things they're doing, but I'm just like that second line. I love that second line. The marble, the yeah. marbled moonlit trees, rose like fresh memorials. Like yeah, marbled moonlit trees. That's great stuff. That's like, and there's this, there's a sense <laughs> in which it's all dynamic and alive. It's not just like the trees aren't just statically there. They actually they rose like in that moment, like they sprouted and rose. Yeah, um, and the countryside pulsed which is great because so, when, when yeah. you're, you, you know when you're down in the grass looking up at everything it's yeah yeah all right nice. all right next poem next poem you're up oh in the vast star clustered sky was mine okay my my first poem two of my poems are by Auden W.H. Auden I've never taken the time to learn what W.H. stand for but he was a sure. 20th century poet. Um, I, I'll briefly comment that most of my poems are from, I have two poems that are from pre-20th century, but uh, four of my six are post. And I think part of that might just be that, like, if, you know, the closer we are in time, kind of the closer we are in language Yeah. to, you know, someone being able to speak to our moment a little more. I don't know. Right. It, it makes sense to me. Right. But stop all of the clocks, which isn't actually a title. It's like, it's what you do when a poem doesn't really have a title and you take kind of the first phrase mm -hmm. of the poem. And it's also known as funeral blues because it's appeared in a movie. Um, but here's the poem. Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. Put crepe bows around the white necks of the public doves, let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. 
pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood, for nothing now can ever come to any good. And this is like, this feels like such a sappy poem to include in your favorites. Like, but for me, uh, one, the first time I ever read it, I was kind of like, I was in the mood to read it. Yeah. And so I was much affected. And then I, one thing I kind of, that I think a lot of contemporary poetry struggles with, or once you get to like, once you start trying to be official about engaging in poetry, I feel like um, you kind of disengage emotionally from it. And so like, uh, that the the, 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 this poem so forcefully tries to kind of come at you um, with grief. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something I, I really admire about it like I think it does a very good job of it, you know in a short space you don't have a lot of context to take someone from wherever they're at and by the end of is this a sonnet no no but at the end of the one two three four 16 lines at the end of their 16 lines to have them feel something radically different or mm -hmm. able to bring the mood down. Um, I think it does a... Language often feels insufficient to the task of uh, articulating grief. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is a moment that defies that generalization where a very good wordsmith... Uh, made grief happen in language. Yeah, do you happen to know anything about the biographical background here? I do not. Okay. But Alden lost a lover, that's all we know? Or is writing as if he did? Oh, yeah, I don't know if it had anything to do with Auden personally losing yeah. someone. I actually, for the first like half of this poem, I thought it might be about Christ and Good Friday because he is dead is in capital letters, like capital H, he is dead, which often signifies Christ. But then it, it became pretty clear. Could it not be? I mean, it could be, but... I. I changed my mind when, when I started reading lines about how love couldn't last forever and nothing could come of it, you know, nothing good would ever come. So if you wanted to know a little bit more, in 1936, he had a first version. Um, and it was a satiric poem of mourning for a political leader written hmm. for a verse play that he was working on with Christopher Isherwood. In okay. 1938... He wrote a version to be sung by a soprano in a setting by Benjamin Britten. Um, and this was the version that was published. Uh, that we the, just read. This is the later one? Yep. Interesting. So, yeah, and it, but you bring up an interesting point, I guess, about Auden, which is totally irrelevant to the poem. But 
Auden was a Christian, but also seemed to be kind of very comfortable with an ambiguous sexuality. Yeah. Uh, and so, <laughs> um, anyway. That's part of, I mean, that's part of why I thought, oh, he's talking about a man he he loved and lost. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I guess it's, what else, what else, anything else relevant talking about here? I mean, he he just does a great job of bringing in all kinds of different categories and, like, relating them to grief, like north, south, east, and west as directions, and then time, the working week, and Sunday rest, and then the stars, the sun. He, he just brings in, like, these big human uh, experiences and... uh yeah, it it is so interesting. Like that's how disorienting yeah. loss can yeah. be. Is that so much of what you take for granted or live your life by is kind of ripped out. Mm. It's fascinating that this the first version was written as satire, though. And that's almost what I like. Kind of appreciate yeah. about this. It's almost like put five great writers in a room and give them one hour and the winner of this competition to write the most depressing poem about loss you could possibly write. And it's <laughs> like, that produced this. And, and, and that's not how it came about, but it's like, I don't know, it, it, it seems like this poem could have come from something like that. And I'm not sure that makes it uh, less... Like, you can appropriate the language to whatever you want, I guess. But It's the kind of satire that isn't obviously satire. Like, you could actually read this in a moment of grief and, and relate to it in a deep way. So, yeah. It's, it's a good poem. All right. You're next. Okay, my next one is Wordsworth. She dwelt among the untrodden ways. I think it's a pretty famous poem. All right, here it is. She dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of dove, a maid whom there were none to praise and very few to love, a violet by a mossy stone half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. Uh, I've loved this poem for quite a few years. I, I think one reason I go to poetry and, and literature in general is uh, sort of to escape, um, I don't know, at least in our time, I, I often feel oppressed by the hive mind, like everyone talking about the same things all the time and finding the same things important all the time. At least, you know, on Facebook and Twitter, I get that sense that, you know, things are trending and people are commenting on them. I like 
how poetry, how a poem like this reminds us of kind of the beauty of something that happens in private, a certain like private grief, uh, an unknown beauty, an un like an unpublic um, experience, and cool. it's written. What? I mean, the fact that it's a published poem doesn't that make it yeah, yeah. a not private experience? In a way, I mean, yes, it's presented to the public, but the way we as readers relate to it is by remembering, you know, things in our own lives that were private that made a difference to me alone and and other people didn't see or notice. So, it's a public like it's it's a published poem, but I I think the theme is about kind of the tenderness and and beauty of a certain private experience. Um it's written in ballad form or a variant of ballad form where it alternates between iambic tetrameter and iambic trimeter and does the ABAB rhyme scheme. Um, ballads often tell stories in kind of a concise way. And uh, this is very concise, very short poem that doesn't doesn't really tell the story of who this woman was, but um, tells the story of of kind of of longing to have known her more and and also being grieved that she left the earth. Um, I mean, it's also kind of a just it's a nice trick or like structure to have. You know, the first thing is it's a 12 line poem. You know, yeah. the first 11 lines are describing the maid. Right. And then on the 12th line, the difference to me is about the speaker. The very last word is what reveals that it's a first person. Point yeah, because <laughs> you, you don't. And it, it, may, it changes how you kind of read the first 11 lines mm -hmm. the second time you do it because yeah. it's it's a story about this woman. But, you know, and then the difference to me introduces a difference <laughs> to, I don't know, the, the reader and the poem. And, yeah, it makes a big difference that it's not this omniscient poet narrator. At the end, you find out it's this personal individual yeah. poet who's in grief not Im impassable <laughs> yeah <laughs> a very passable uh suffering human being um what else what else the untrodden ways so she's in a kind of remote area but that also is kind of means uh, well Never mind. I was going to say the untrodden ways is kind of another indicate, like, it could be metaphorically of, like, not many people appreciate her. Yeah. Um, and, and perhaps her... But it might just geographically mean, like, not many people appreciated her because she lived in the untrodden yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, 
and there's a sense that like the poet wishes he could have gotten to know her better um like that there were certain experiences that are untrodden yeah but i just uh have always she connected emotionally them. with this poem so the, yeah they were his untrodden ways could be yeah she dwelt among the untrodden ways but he must have seen her at some point he must have trodden there yeah but but i mean like the 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 diff like she represents what could have been yeah I don't know. In interesting interesting i just uh i have uh, salinger does this for me too with fiction like writes about these kind of private moments and uh, hidden people that that aren't really thought about much um like holden caulfield and the catcher in the rye loves the guy in the orchestra who does the cymbals like every year in the Christmas uh, show mm -hmm. and no one notices him. He just does the cymbals like, like once or twice in the whole show <laughs> and he has this big smile. I just love uh, when more unnoticed things are given attention. Anyway, we should okay. move on. Um, I have one more Auden poem, but it pairs well with another of yours, I think. Okay. So I'm going to hold off. Um, so this is a weird one in, in that I didn't read him in school. He, I saw this poem in a New Yorker magazine once. But it turns out he, he was a pretty big deal. or like Not on the order of Auden or Eliot or Hart Crane or something like that, but like he was a notable 20th century poet, J.V. Cunningham. Okay. And this is Meditation on Statistical Method. <laughs> cool. Plato Despair. We prove by norms how numbers bear empiric forms, how random wrong will average right, if time be long and error slight. But in our hearts, hyperbole curves and departs to infinity. Error is boundless, nor hope nor doubt, though both be groundless, will average out. <laughs> it's fun, and I, I think that's... That almost is, I, I liked that about The Untrodden Ways, too, and I, the more I stayed with uh, my name. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I like poems that aren't super inaccessible. Yeah. I like poems that, like, can be fun in the first five minutes of your engagement with them. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, and... Could you maybe comment on, see, I haven't really studied uh, statistics. I mean, are there, I feel like I'm missing some of what's going on. Um, well, I took statistics with Cal pass fail and passed by the hair on my chin. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know much more than you. I mean, I, I guess he's getting at like the kind of thing where in a large sample size, the error is negligible or something is it something like that well or yeah i guess if we go into it a little bit it's I, th I think it's about how we've come to operate in the world a little mm -hmm. bit and, and plato despair you know plato and his forms and you know the cave and how 
true reality um, is the ideal of the material reality we see around us and the material reality is somehow lesser or only approximates mm -hmm. any ideals well statistics kind of turns that on its head and says actually uh, well I don't know if that turns it on its head but it's like how we prove by norms how numbers bear empiric forms random right how random wrong will average right and I, I guess it's just how um, we arrive at truths about the world by statistical methods that don't um, maybe reflect the intuitive way we think about things. Um, mm -hmm. If time be long and error slight, you know, what's, what's the average of 100, 100s, and 100 zeros? 50. What? <laughs> the mean of 100, 100 of a set of numbers. Yeah. If you had 100 zeros and 100 100s, the mean would be 50. And maybe the right answer is 50, but like every actual instance of that set of integers is not 50. You know. Yeah. I don't. I, and and I'm not sure. I'm there. There's probably more going on here for someone who's more discerning about these things, but. Um, that's kind of the, the first part, and then the second part, but in our hearts, hyperbole curves into parts to infinity, error is boundless, nor hope nor doubt, though both be groundless, will average out. Um, Interesting. And this is, I think, more a reflection on how, like, the statistical method <laughs> doesn't work so much with matters of the heart. Mm. It's not like hope and doubt you can't get the the mean of hope and doubt. Huh. Okay. So I I haven't spent a tremendous amount of time reflecting on this poem. I just found it a very fun effort to yeah reflect on the maths of the human heart. I like it. <laughs> it's um it's cute. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's more than cute. <laughs> so it starts with Plato, despair, and then the last stanza is also about hope. Hmm. What kind of hope is he writing about? Yeah, and is there a religious reference with our hearts departing to infinity? Mm hmm. Um,. Yeah, I'm afraid I I don't have intelligent comments on this one. It's one I'll need to look at more. I like it though. I do too. It, it's a poem that uh, I feel like there's a lot more there than I've discovered. But it's like a poem. It sounds like read 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 me a poem or something. I could read them this poem and they would be like, um, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Depends not, on who it is. And not, not that the only point of poetry is to, like, enjoy it. But it, it, maybe. How much of poetry is enjoying it in, in 30 seconds, Bryce? Um, I think it's an important aspect of poetry. Okay. 
but enjoyment uh, isn't always a fun kind of enjoyment. Like I enjoy depressing Ingmar Bergman films because they're so well made and like they an appreciation for yeah. the craft. Yeah. So I mean, enjoyment it, can encompass more than that. Made me feel entertained and distracted. Yeah. Me. Exactly. Yeah. All right, your next poem. Okay. My third poem is going to be Richard Wilbur, who I believe is still alive. He's very old now. Yes. It's a poem called 4C. That's C, capital, with a period. So I assume for his wife, I think her name was Charlotte. I could be mistaken. So 4C. Here it is. Yeah. After the clash of elevator gates and the long sinking, she emerges where, a slight thing in the morning's crosstown glare, she looks up toward the window where he waits, then in a fleeting taxi joins the rest of the huge traffic bound forever west. On such grand scale do lovers say goodbye. Even this other pair whose high romance had only the duration of a dance and who now taking leave with stricken eye, see each in each a whole new life foregone. For them, above the darkling clubhouse lawn, bright Perseids flash and crumble, while for these who part now on the dock, weighed down by grief and baggage, yet with something like relief, it takes 3,000 miles of knitting seas to cancel out their crossing and unmake the amorous rough and tumble of their wake. We are denied, my love, their fine tristesse and bittersweet regrets, and cannot share the frequent vistas of their large despair, where love and all are swept to nothingness. Still, there's a certain scope in that long love, which constant spirits are the keepers of, and which, though taken to be tame and staid, is a wild sostenuto of the heart, a passion joined to courtesy and art, which has the quality of something made, like a good fiddle, like the rose's scent, like a rose window, or the firmament. I love this poem because so much poetry that we come across is deeply shaped by the kind of romantic uh, chasing after uh, heightened passion, feelings of um, almost manic love. And, and this poem is a beautiful celebration of a different kind of love, uh, a more long-term, uh, well, a more stable, perhaps more tame, at least to the world, love. But still, he calls it a wild sostenuto of the heart. A sostenuto, I guess, is like a sustained um, piece of music or movement in music. So something sustained, but also, in a sense, wild. And he calls it a passion joined to courtesy and art. So it's, I think he's carving out a, 
an appreciation we often don't get from poetry for the kind of passionate love that isn't just uh, like an explosion and a brief like. Well, and that's not easy because look at how, look at how amazingly he describes the drama of that right. brief passion. And who now taking leave with stricken eyes see each and each a whole new life foregone. Right. Like, shouldn't like every middle schooler be required to read this or something? <laughs> and high schooler. Yeah. Well, yes. they'd have read it by the time they got to high school. <laughs> oh, true. Uh, that's amazing. So and that's a Perseids. It's like Perseus, the Greek mythology guy flew too close to the sun, right? No, that's isn't that, no. uh, Icarus. Oh, that's Icarus. But Perseids, he's the guy who takes the. Is he the guy who takes the chariot? And goes out of control. He takes over for Helios, the guy who draws the sun around. Am I crazy? He rode on Pegasus. Uh, he cut down. He cut off. Medusa's head, rescued Andromeda. I don't. I don't know much more. I'm not an expert oh. in mythology. There are meteor shower. Yeah, named after Perseus, I would imagine. Yeah, but I, I in this. Yeah. Bright Perseids flash and crumble. Those born, huh? Interesting, okay. A, a good really image of the kind of love he's distinguishing from his own with Charlotte, or C. Um, so the, the passionate, fast love flashes and crumbles, but he and his beloved um, have, what does he call it? Uh, he says it's, it's got a certain scope there's a certain scope in that long love which constant spirits are the keepers of. So there's a certain constancy that makes this love beautiful. Um, it's a long love. It's a, a passion joined to courtesy and art. So it's it's something made, not just something uh, that you're, that sweeps over you and makes you this kind of passive victim. You're rather a participant in like making this love a beautiful thing but yeah it's kind of interesting i almost feel like he fails <laughs> so one word i had to look up was we are denied my love they're fine tristesse or whatever tristesse tristesse which is a state of melancholy sadness and i guess one thing that you kind of see a little bit here is that one's very destructive and yeah. one builds up one is Dionysius, one is Apollo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so bittersweet regrets cannot share the frequent vistas of their large despair where love and all are swept to nothingness. Mm -hmm. Whereas the quality of something made, you know, you go from, you know, something that might exist to not being realized, to something that actually does get realized. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's kind of... 
one is made, one isn't. And it's almost like part of the, like an integral part of the fast, passionate love is that you you get the despair and you get the destruction. Yeah. Well, is is that it doesn't get made? Yeah. So there's there's a certain like gutsiness in actually sticking with it, like embracing the reality instead of the the ideal of what could have been. Yeah, and I think you see that in a lot of things. I think you see that in. Uh, people say they want to do all sorts of things and they have a problem getting started and they love the idea of flirting with like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to write poems or I'm going to paint things or I'm going to do yeah. X, Y, or Z. And it's like, but it, it loses some of the idealism or some of the, the romance if you actually go out and start doing those things. Definitely, yeah. But to actually achieve anything, you have to do that. And I've heard several novelists talk about how they have this like beautiful ideal for what for what their novel's going to be, and then when they actually put it on paper, it always falls short. <laughs> but at least it's out there. A passion joined to courtesy and art. Yeah, Fine. yeah. People have it, it. Isn't anything. It's just a passion until it it becomes something. Mm -hmm. A final thought. I I love how the four examples at the end that he uses to compare this love with like the first three can be taken as man-made like he's talking about things made like yeah. a good fiddle a rose's scent can be made in the sense that you extract the scent from a rose and a rose window is something made like in a church but the firmament the last example i think you know clearly points to the making of, you know, God making the universe, making the sky. Hmm. So that even nature itself has the quality of something made and and that there's not like less beauty because something has art and intention behind it. I love his American on the huge traffic bound forever west. Uh-huh. Yeah. Another good image for this romantic longing. <laughs> that you can always go remake yourself. That you can always... Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's, that's probably enough time on that yeah. poem, but it's a great one. And, uh, yeah, it, it kind of goes without saying we could spend a lot longer on any of these, I suppose. Yeah. But we're just trying to share some of the stuff we like. What's up next, Ford? Gerard Manley Hopkins. Nice. Um, so he has, a collect, uh, well, he wrote a group of sonnets that people have kind of referred to as the terrible sonnets. Yeah. And, uh, this is perhaps the most famous, I think, but George Manley Hopkins was a Jesuit priest and, uh, he was confirmed in the Catholic faith by John Henry Newman. <laughs> A closeted poet uh, <laughs> who threatened or like felt like being a poet kind of conflicted with maybe his religious duties, but eventually was commissioned um, the wreck of the Deutschland uh, when by the church to write poetry, and luckily he wrote poetry because he wrote really good poetry. Anyway, 
This is known as I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you heart saw, ways you went, and more must, and yet longer lights delay. With witness I speak this, but where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. I am gall, I am heartburn. God's most deep decree bitter would have me taste. My taste was mean, bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed the cursed. Self yeast of spirit, a dull dough sours. I see the lost are like this, and they're scourged to be as I am mine, their sweating selves. But worse. Bleak. Yeah. <laughs> and so, my favorite thing in this poem is well, the, the first line's so cool. Mm -hmm. I wake and feel the fell of dark not day. That's just like, excuse my language, but that, that feels and sounds badass. <laughs> like, where are you? Gerard, like <laughs> you make it feel and he's, the answer is he's in a dark place. <laughs> but I guess uh, the the sense of the word fell may be uh well, I saw an adjective that means of terrible evil or ferocity, but I'm not sure what the noun sense would be. Do you know? Uh I assumed it was like the uh, maybe I've kind of read it as the feeling of dark, not day. It could be. So the, I feel the, the feeling of dark, not day. I wake and instead of feeling day, I feel dark. It may be the act of falling or collapsing the way darkness falls yeah. on the earth. I wake and feel, you know, what should be happening right now. The, mm -hmm. the sun should be coming up, mm -hmm. but instead darkness falls. Yeah. But so my favorite thing is what hours or what black hours we have spent this night. And he says hours, anyone, he calls them black hours. Mm -hmm. And then um, on line six, he's like, hang on, hang on. I said <laughs> hours. Let's, let's be very clear about what I mean. I mean years. I mean life, life. Like all of it. This was not a dark five minutes. This is like my perpetual state of existence, always. <laughs> and but but yeah. the way he he moves from hours of like a literal one night, he you know maybe had nightmares or maybe something is causing him grief or anxiety this night, and it's like no, this isn't the condition of Gerard Manley Hopkins on a given night. This is the condition of mankind for their entire lives. But if you just came out and said that, like it would it would totally lack the mm. drama of having been through that night. Mm. I don't know. I, I I find it inventively dark. <laughs> <laughs> I am gone. <laughs> and then really uh, I think a lot of my appreciation for the rest of this poem comes out of him playing with uh, kind of the theology of you know God's most deep decree bitter would have me taste my taste was me like the 
the anthro the, the theological anthropology he's kind of playing with. Um, yeah. I'm trying to understand the end where he says the lost are like this and they're scourged to be as I am mine. What does mine refer to, you think? Oh, uh, scourge? Yeah, their scourge is to be themselves. Oh, as I am myself. Okay. Yeah. But worse. Yeah, so, worse means they're lost. They're not sane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so if you thought this is yeah. what you should hand out to people considering becoming a Christian because you think it'll make your life feel better. <laughs> if you think Christianity is about feeling nice or being comfortable... Or, 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 or really that it's a panacea to the human condition. And yeah. in one sense, I like to believe very strongly that it is. But in another sense, in the sense that I think most people want it to be. Yeah. Um, it isn't. And he's kind of playing with those two senses. Or maybe he's even like feeling out what those two senses are. Like, in what way could the lost be worse? And he doesn't really proffer an answer to that like yeah in fact that kind of seems to lack power it's almost like an addendum it's like an add-on yeah because he doesn't give any reason why it's worse to be lost yeah except that we infer like well because you won't go to hell if you're not lost i mean <laughs> at least maybe there's some hope at least on an intellectual level that he maintains i i, I don't i don't think it's about I would be disappointed if it's about uh, the eschatological destination or like if but worse means but they're going to hell and I'm not. Mm -hmm. I would be disappointed. I think it has something to do with or what, what, what I would, my inclination, the but worse would be my tools for understanding and dealing with the condition mm. I find myself in. Yeah. The... The communion with the God um, that I worship somehow uh, makes this more bearable or pro offers at least hope. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to me, to me that he says we have spent the night this way, but then he uses I say ours. Like I wonder who is included in we uh going through this dark night together oh the heart what sights you heart saw ways you went uh you heart yeah so his heart and himself conceived as distinct in a way and so i guess it's kind of about the fall i wake and feel the fall or the fell of dark not day yeah, and that's yeah. what you know god's most deep decree blood brimmed the cursed yeah there's, like right. a sep there's a separation between himself and his heart, and then at the end there's a separation between himself and himself. <laughs> anyway. Well, and that, maybe there's even more to it than that. It's like, I am gall, I am heartburn. And he yeah. talked about his heart up there. And he's almost like, I'm inducing... I make my heart suffer. <laughs> mm. Well, I know in context, like, Hopkins was pretty depressed on his assignment in Ireland. I think he was teaching college classes there at the new 
university in Dublin for Catholics. And mm. while in Ireland, he felt just alienated. He felt, yeah, it, it was really a dark night of the soul. Yeah. Which is a good transition to the poem I'm going to read next. Also a nighttime dark poem. Um, maybe less graphically bleak, but it's uh, Acquainted with the Night by Robert Frost. More understated grief. All right, here it is, Acquainted with the Night. I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky Proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. Uh, I, I've loved this poem. I think I first read it in high school, possibly early on in college. Is the speaker Batman? I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not even going to comment on that. <laughs> I think I just immediately connected with um, this poem's kind of sense of the way life can sometimes be dark, be lonely, and not make sense. Um, it's written in terza rima form, which is the, the form Dante used for the Divine Comedy. It's like a ABA, BCB rhyme scheme. Um, so I think there's a certain connection with Dante at the beginning of the Inferno being lost, um, being on his own. And then the first five lines begin, They all five begin with the words, I have, like I have been one acquainted with the night, I have walked, I have outwalked, etc., so it's in this tense, which I find really interesting, this uh, present perfect tense, which is a little bit ambiguous. It's not like I used to, it's not like I was acquainted, but it's also not like I am acquainted, I'm walking out in rain. It's kind of this like, my life has been this way and in a sense still is perhaps. Um, Did his English teacher get mad at him? Why? For using the present perfect tense. Why would an English teacher get mad at that? It's not, you're not using active verbs. You that's should say, not, I walk out in the rain, not... No, that's not what active verbs... Oh, mean. never mind. I don't, I'm trying to make a joke, but I'm, my dog was barking <laughs> and I'm not even... What did we get in trouble for? In Passive verbs like... Oh, passive verbs. I have been looked at instead of I have looked... Yes. Uh, so let's see. I, I interpret this poem yeah, on what? some level as a another 
another poem about a kind of dark night of the soul in which someone is struggling with life's, um, you know, a certain like distance from God, a certain distance from meaning. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say that the time was wrong. He says it was neither wrong nor right. So it's like there's not even the the satisfaction of things being wrong. There's even a sense that like there's no wrong, there's no right. He's like disconnected from meaning. Um, you, I just noticed how like the eye kind of methodically drops out and then comes back. The yeah. first stanza, it's I have, I have, I have, and then it's I have, I have, and then it's I have. <laughs> well, you know, you know what I mean, like yeah. That's and then you have like six lines in a row without the eye. What is the, I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over mm. houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. That seems like, that's kind of strange because like, but not to call me back or say goodbye seems like a reference to like a, a soured romantic relationship. Yeah. Or like he thought something was going somewhere and it wasn't. And not necessarily romantic. I mean, probably, but it could be a relationship with a, a friend or a relative, uh, but more likely a wife. Yeah. Like uh, there was some kind of fight and he left and walked alone in the rain. And then the cry that he expected to be his wife calling him back. Or at least saying goodbye was neither one. What I just looked up luminary, and I its second definition is an artificial light. So, what's the first one? The one that would have confused me a little more, which is a person who inspires or influences other, especially one prominent in a particular sphere. I think he's talking. So there's also a literary sense of the word in which it it means um, a natural light-giving body, especially the sun or the moon. I think he's talking about the moon, probably. Hmm. One luminary clock against the sky, and he says it's at an unearthly height. So I think that's like... Oh, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> cute. Well, it, it's like when you mess around, I, that's like a word I use to describe someone doing something clever with words and I that's a lot cute, of poetry I think the word cute can often be demeaning disparaging really yeah don't tell Hello Kitty <laughs> I won't I never talk to Hello Kitty <laughs> partly because I'm not even sure I know there are Hello Kitty backpacks but I don't know what Hello Kitty is don't even tell me don't that's even all tell it me. is that's all I don't know it's just uh, something you associate what else about this poem? So it ends with a couplet. Proclaim the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. So it breaks out of the Terzarima stanza form, a, the ABA, and it goes to a couplet. And it, it also uses the first line from the poem as the last line. I have been one acquainted with the night. So it circles back in a way but the poet, like, the content of the poem doesn't really, like, he doesn't circle back to 
his house in the end. I mean, he's just out there on his own, sad, dark. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm not sure what to make of that. Just noticed it. Yeah. Okay. We've been doing a lot of serious poems. <laughs> I guess my meditation on statistical method, but even that was sort of, it got serious on us. My brain is just kind of like, what? It doesn't know where to go with the, with this poem. It wants to sit on it more. Yeah. What do you think it means? An interrupted cry. I was wondering about that. Hmm. I don't know. I, I think he just hears a cry that doesn't actually get to be completed. Like something stops it and it's just kind of this half-spoken thing. Or it's like cut off abruptly. How can the time be wrong or right? Hmm. Well, okay. <laughs> the time is wrong or right on the basis of whether it's accurate. But what's... So it, a clock would normally tell you the, the right time or, like, or an incorrect time. Hmm. Like it, it, well, it, but it wouldn't let you know. It would just tell you a time. A clock would tell you a time. Yeah. But this clock says the time is neither long, neither wrong or right, nor right. I kind of, I wasn't thinking so much of, of clocks being accurate. I just, I was thinking how we, often in life we talk about like, oh, the timing is right for a certain thing or, or yeah. that uh, the timing is wrong. So that was kind of the idea I had like it's neither wrong nor right. Yeah, and like, it's a source of light in the night. Like, cause when he says acquainted with the night, it I mean he he means like acquainted with like sadness or a dark place, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, in any sense, this is all about interiority, or or does he literally mean, you know? These are actions I've taken. <laughs> I don't think it's it has to be an either or. I, I think you could literally be out in the night and and the night kind of represents the interior darkness. Hmm. Uh, Robert Frost apparently once said he never wrote a nature poem. <laughs> Even though he's famous for like poems about nature. So I think the idea is that he's always writing about something some deeper layer of meaning. Yeah. All right, we, we're running out of time. Let's move on to the next one. I think we should probably just do five each. And one of them, I'm not doing Yates, by the way. Uh -huh. so. <laughs> you could still read Auden's poem about Yates if you want to. I left my favorite two for last. I mean, you could read the the sixth one without comment if you want. That might work. 
So, okay, I'm going to read one, and it, it, it's another draw of Manly Hopkins, and it will have one very brief comment that I want to share. Okay. okay. Um, this is the Windhover, and in italics before the poem begins, it says, To Christ our Lord. Um, the, a Windhover is a type of falcon, by the way. Um, I caught this morning, morning's minion. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dolphin, dappled on drawn falcon in his riding, of the rolling level underneath him, steady air and striding high there. How he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, O oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then. A billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow down silly and shine and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. And this poem is, on the one hand, a huge mouthful. Yeah. Um, I wrote a paper about it in college, and the last stanza was on a separate page from the handout that we'd been given in class. So I wrote a paper about this poem with only the first two stanzas. <laughs> he, he liked the paper. He gave me an A-, and he said, the poem continued on the next page. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, did, you, did your paper make any important claims about like what you thought was the final line <laughs> yeah i treated oh my chevalier is kind of yeah that last line <laughs> ending on triumph <laughs> and uh i so one my, my one comment beyond that is just that this poem initially seems kind of uh unintelligible uh, or, or di like difficult to follow, and that's because the first stanza, he's using a lot of words to describe the action of a bird in flight, mm -hmm. like a ton of words to describe the falcon in his writing, and then uh, it's really an appreciation of creation that he's kind of famous for in a couple of places. Mm -hmm. um, it's beautiful. All right, so here's my last. Poem. Okay. And this one will be over the comment. This is by Auden in memory of WB. And I get everything wrong about this. Yates? Yeah. Okay, I was going to go Yeats, but it's Keats, not Yeats. Keats and Yeats. Keats and Yeats, even though I want to say Keats and Yeats. <laughs> All right. In memory of WB, Yeats. He disappeared in the dead of winter. The brooks were frozen, the airports almost deserted, and snow disfigured the public statues. Statues? Statues. <laughs> the mercury sank in the mouth of the dying day. What instruments we have agree. The day of his death was a dark, cold day. Far from his illness, the wolves ran on through the evergreen forest. The peasant river was untempted by fashionable quays. By morning tongues, the death of the poet was kept from his poems. But for him, it was his last afternoon as himself, an afternoon of nurses and rumors. The provinces of his body revolted. 
The squares of his mind were empty. Silence invaded the suburbs. The current of his feeling failed. He became his admirers. Now he is scattered among a hundred cities, and wholly given over to unfamiliar affections, to find his happiness in another kind of wood, and be punished under a fo foreign code of conscience. The words of a de dead man are modified in the guts of the living. But in the importance and noise of tomorrow, when brokers are roaring like beasts on the floor of the bourse, and the poor have the sufferings to which they are fairly accustomed, and each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom, a few thousand will think of this day, as one thinks of a day when one did something slightly unusual. What instruments we have agree, the day of his death was a dark, cold day. You were silly like us, your gift survived it all. The parish of rich women, physically, physical decay, yourself. Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry, now Ireland has her madness and her weather still. For poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its making where executives would never want to tamper, flows on south from ranches of isolation, and the busy griefs. Raw towns that we believe in, that we believe and die in, it survives. A way of happening, a mouth. And this is the last stanza. Sorry, it's a little long for the podcast. But this is the coolest stanza. Earth receive an honored guest. William Yeats is laid to rest. Let the Irish vessel lie, emptied of its poetry. In the nightmare of the dark, all the dogs of Europe bark, and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its hate. Intellectual disgrace stares from every human face, and the seas of pity lie, locked and frozen in each eye. Follow poet, follow right, to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prisons, in the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. Nice. And if we can, we can just combine our comments really to the last stanza because there's plenty there. Um, I think it's important to know the context of when this was written. When was it written? I would say sometime in the 1930s. Is that right? I want to know. 19, March 8th, 1939. Um... And it's significant um, because World War II is about to start, and he um, Auden's making quite a few references to kind of the political situation across Europe. Um, but he accomplishes that in the midst of doing a lot of other things, just more generally about the human condition, which. I mean, it, this feels like it accomplishes as much as poetry can try and accomplish a little bit, or, or like if it's going to be... So one, he's memorializing a titan of poetry. Two, he's commenting on the political situation of the world. Three, he's commenting on the role of poetry. 
-hmm. Four, he's commenting on the human condition. And he's kind of exhorting um, his readers on to, and or whether he's exhorting Yeats or the reader or any potential poets to uh, follow right to the bottom of the night, persuade us to rejoice. Um, it, it's interesting for its reflection on like maybe even beyond poetry, kind of the, the role of public discourse, but mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you I think? Yeah. I think this last section, the third section is really interesting in light of the previous claim that poetry makes nothing happen because in a sense, the whole third section of the poem is about things happening because of poetry, like to persuade people to rejoice, to let the healing fountain start. Like these are some pretty important things happening, but they're more like interior events <laughs> rather than, um, you know, external political events. And he, he, I think he's contrasting like political constraint with poetic persuasion. He's when he says, with your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. So, well, you know, so uh, I think he, that, that, that for poetry makes nothing happen. Mm. I think he's pretty aggressively. Well, I think one way you could read it is pretty aggressively um, ironic. Yeah. Because that follows, it survives in the valley of its making where executives would never want to tamper. So, mm -hmm. CEOs, business leaders, the titans of industry, the people who push the world forward. They could care less what's happening in the world of poetry. They could care less about poetry. They would never run in the circles or think about they're too busy doing things to sit here and reflect, I don't know, to, to participate in poetry. Yeah. I didn't realize the word executives went back to 19, 1939 at least. Oh, I mean, I, I think not. you're right. I think you're right in what it means. And, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So, in the nightmares of the dark, all the dogs of Europe bark, and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its hate. And, and in one sense, yeah, in 1939, there was a lot of bad stuff happening in Europe. Um, Anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany was already super, super, super crazy. Mm -hmm. Um but in, in, in a sense, I think part of what he's uh, working out for poetry is that, um, in the stanza, is that may, maybe that's kind of the natural state of, of humanity under the curse, under the mm -hmm. fall. Um, it, it, that, it, that If left without, without, without the remedial persuasion of teaching of of good poetry <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or whatever might serve as good poetry you know that's that's your fate to be sequestered in your hate um, mm. in the nightmare of the dark intellectual disgrace stares around. yeah I, I just love it I love this yeah. last stanza and I mean the whole Poem's pretty great. 
It is I, a beautiful. It's a beautiful tribute to Yeats and to poetry as a whole. It's it's powerful. And I don't actually know a ton of Yeats, but I ended up not choosing a Yeats poem, even though I love many of his. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. All right, let's wanna, do your final another one. I really want to read and end on a happier note. Yes. <laughs> it's called Waking with Russell by Don Patterson. Oh, you've mentioned this guy before. He's Scottish. He is still alive and writing. Did you link at one point to like him reading? Probably. I love one his of voice and his accent. Unfortunately, I won't be able to quite imitate his Scottish accent when I read this. Oh, you should try. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, okay. All right. Waking with Russell. And this is about his son, Russell, I think his first child. I just braced myself because we've been reading so much sad stuff. I assumed like his fourth, his child died. I hope... But you said this was happy, so... Yeah, I'm, ending on a happier note. So and he's not dead. Right. Good. <laughs> no spoiler spoiler alert, but the kid's alive. Good. Um, I just also, watched House of Cards, too, so I'm on edge. Like, <laughs> anything could happen. This poem, by the way, uses an Italian phrase, I believe from Dante's Inferno, called Mezzo del Camin, which means in the middle of the road. And that's... That describes where Dante was when he was lost before hmm. Virgil found him. Got it. Okay, waking with Russell. Whatever the difference is, it all began. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm expecting you to laugh. No, right? I love it. Whatever the difference is, it all began. The day we woke up face to face like lovers, and his four-day-old smile dawned on him again, possessed him till it would not fall or waver. And I pitched back not my old hard-pressed grin, but his own smile, or one I'd rediscovered. Dear son, I was mezzo del camin, and the true path was as lost to me as ever. Cut in front and lit it as you ran. See how the true gift never leaves the giver. Returned and redelivered, it rolled on until the smile poured through us like a river. How fine, I thought, this waking amongst men. I kissed your mouth and pledged myself forever. I think it's a beautiful poem wow. of fatherly love for his son and, and also the love of the four-day-old son for his father. Um, starts out in a dark place, you know, in the, in the middle of the road, when he had lost the true path. Um, but his son, his son kind of renews, it gives him direction, lights the path so that he can um, yeah. kind of rediscover uh, kind of a, a path he had lost, a, a life of joy and meaning. I love how this poem, it's, it's a kind of sonnet I mean, it's, yeah, it's 14 lines, it's, uh, but it's A, B, A, B, A, B, all the way down. It's just kind of like slant rhymes that almost rely on Don Patterson's Scottish accent in order to rhyme. Hmm. Like, 
began and again and grin and come in and ran and on and men don't exactly rhyme but they rhyme like more in the scotch first yeah uh hard press doesn't seem like a fancy word but i just looked it up because i kind of wanted to know more exactly what it meant because like i feel like it's one of those things you intuit very easily kind of what it's supposed to connote but hmm. closely pursued or burdened with urgent business Hmm. His hard-pressed grin. I pitched back not my old hard-pressed grin, but his own smile, or one I'd rediscovered. And that's... I mean, it's a beautiful poem about, like, I guess regaining your innocence through becoming a parent. Mm-hmm. And how something of what he used to have is returned and re-delivered to him through his son's smile. And the smile pours through them like a river. I love that image. Um, there's this beautiful, lively connection uh, through the joy they share. And so he's, also, he switches who he's addressing in the poem, too. Right. He's addressing his wife, and he's addressing his son, and then he goes back to address. Well, his you wife. said he's addressing his wife. I think he's waking up. Like lovers with his son. Oh, I read it as it all began the day we woke up face to face like lovers, and his four day old smile dawned on him again, possessed. Oh, uh, yeah. That could be, actually. If he's, you know, you imagine he's talking to his wife. I imagine he was just talking to a general audience and saying he woke up with his son, you know, next to each other like lovers. Huh. No, you're no, you're right. And I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a compelling uh, read on it. Don't. I take it back. Yeah, at the end, because he does say waking amongst men, like waking up with his son in both senses, like literally waking up and then yeah, on a spiritual level, waking because of the joy his son shows. It's funny, too, how the kid, he says, when you cut in front and lit it as you ran. And lit it as you ran. When you cut in front and lit it as you ran. Lit the true path. Yeah, it's just, it's funny to see, think of a four-year-old. Four-day-old. Yes, four-day, more or less, a four-day-old <laughs> leading and yeah. running. But it's like, you know. I love that line, and see how the true gift never leaves the giver. The idea that, you know, it's it's a kind of a cliche, like when you, like giving is better than receiving, but uh, like when you really give something good, you don't actually lack it. You actually, like the person receives it and you also receive it back. I don't know. The way spiritual goods like only increase when they're shared instead of being a zero sum game. Yeah. Absolutely. I've I've always been puzzled though about the first phrase of this poem, whatever the difference is, and then he goes on to tell about the moment. It was the difference. Whatever the difference is. Between his old hard pressed grin and his own smile, between being in the middle of the road with the path true path being lost to him versus it being lit. 
Oh, you know what? He might be alluding to The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, when it, which closes with the line, that's made all the difference. And this poem begins with the difference and then talks about the true path, hmm. like the two roads. I wonder if that's going on here. I never saw that before. Hmm. What has pledged myself forever? I think he's pledging himself to his son and to this true path that he's rediscovered. I, like pledging himself to not just fall back and get lost in the darkness again. His priorities in order this time around. I think so. Or not or pledging not to fall back asleep. Like he's now awake amongst men. Now what is it I, I'm not sure I totally get what's going on. See how the true gift never leaves the giver. Returned and re-delivered, it rolled on until the smile poured through us like a river. What does it mean returned? Oh, so the four four day old smiles Mm -hmm. He returns the smile. Mm -hmm. It's redelivered to him, and it rolls on. And yeah, got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just kind of had to work through the logic. I love it. Yeah. Well, cool. That was a great one to end on. Yeah. I do Happy have note. an honorable mention or two, though. Okay. Um. Probably one of the most mainstream poems, because I get so many treatments, but they get so many good treatments. Is the Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. <laughs> Christopher Walken reads the entirety of it on SoundCloud. You can go look it up. It's amazing. There's wow. also a Simpsons episode that is entirely The Raven. Both of those are like... I love setting stuff. It's like Shakespeare's plays, right? You're forced to read them, but like, go watch Kenneth Branagh perform them or something. I don't know. <laughs> or listen to Brian Cranston read Ozymandias by Shelley. As a commercial yes. for Breaking Bad, I love. It's like a commercial I love most of any <laughs> I've ever seen, probably. Um, and then I my so not fit for this podcast was The Hunting of the Snark by Lewis Carroll, and mm. Orlando in Love by Matteo Boiardo. It was an epic. It was an epic Italian poem. Um, yeah, very very long. I thought about reading the Aeneid on the podcast, but. <laughs> <laughs> I decided not to. Oh, can I? Do you have any more honorable mentions? Because I have a few. Uh, I love a lot of Lewis Carroll's stuff, especially his nonsense oh. stuff. So, like the Mad Gardener song, I really enjoy. Um, when I said cute, in video games, people get accused of doing something cute when they think they have a big enough advantage to do something that uh, is stylistically preferable or like fun but actually hurts your performance. And so it's like you're getting a, you're you're doing something extra that yeah. isn't necessary but makes you look cool. Like when football players uh slow down and walk into the end zone. Yeah, it's like don't get cute. Like yeah. <laughs> don't squander your advantage. And I I guess I just mean yeah, I, I didn't mean it to be demeaning. I've been thinking about that. Anyway, so your honorable mentions. Okay, one of the poems that's probably had the biggest impact on my life is a Hopkins one actually called The Blessed Virgin Compared to the Air We Breathe. I read that at a time when I was really wondering about the role of the Virgin Mary in Christian life and Christian spirituality and and this poem kind of helped me to 
to frame her role in such a way that didn't diminish the attention we give to God, but rather like amplifies um, or sheds further light on God and on Christ. So it's a poem I, I think of very fondly and, and like to return to, but it's kind of long, not too long. Uh, what were the other ones? Oh, a, a longer one, Eloisa to Abelard by Alexander Pope. I love Pope. I love that poem. I love the movie named after a line from that poem, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, it's a great poem that wrestles with like human passion when it feels contradictory to religious devotion. Hmm. Eloisa wrestles with the, the contradiction there. And I think doesn't quite give a fair treatment of <laughs> the beauty and depth of religious devotion. She's more on the like romantic passion side, but yeah, it's a beautiful poem. The last one, I, uh, I'd, I'd forgotten one in memoriam by uh, Tennyson. Tennyson. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, and one of the cool things about being an English major was like, you know, when Tennyson was a poet, he was like a celebrity. You know, yeah. he was a he was a big deal culturally, in a way that a poet could not really attain to today. Um, Alas, but and and he, you know, publicly memorialized the death of this friend that he loved um, into this amazing poem that's rather long, but. It's just such a public thing. I don't know. It's, it's I think our cool. our famous poets are rappers and songwriters. Yeah, that's probably true. Most rappers don't quite compare with the likes of Tennyson, but some of them are very good. I mean, Tennyson doesn't compare to some of our rappers, though. Conversely. <laughs> <laughs> also, songwriters like Bob Dylan, they're pretty great poets, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean absolutely they are. And there I guess was not the same proliferation of songwriters in the past. Yeah. In Victorian England. Um Yeah. All right. Well, that's I think all the time we have. Any parting thoughts? Uh read poetry. <laughs> that's my thought. There you go. Go to genius dot com. You know, you can read, uh, I have a friend who worked for Genius to analyze uh, the Greek, Greek plays for Genius.com. Really? Yeah. And like, the, make comments on the original Greek and stuff like that. Do they do that for English language poetry? I need to get this job. Uh, I mean, it wasn't an amazing one, and Genius went through a bunch of scandals, Oh, I think. Um, but, uh, what, sure, let's, what's, a, what's a poem we just read? Acquainted with the Night. Yes, Robert Frost, Acquainted with the Night. Okay, we found we found 
Yeah. There's commentary? Oh, absolutely. Yes, there's in very in-depth commentary. And it's kind of like Wikipedia in that some of it's like crowdsourced. And you can see like how many people agree with it. Or the status of whoever made the comment. I would invite listeners to like grab a real book instead of going to genius.com. <laughs> Get a Kindle, you know. Just I'm so trying you know. to persuade and not constrain. <laughs> All, right. Grab a book. <laughs> All, All right. right, I enjoyed it, Ford. All right, I'll see you all next time. I enjoyed it too. Adios. Waking with Russell. Whatever the difference is, it all began the day we woke up face to face like lovers, and his four-day-old smile dawned on him again, possessed him, till it would not fall or waver, and I pitched back not my old hard-pressed grin, but his own smile, or one I'd rediscovered. Dear son, how was Mezzo del Camin and the true path was as lost to me as ever when you cut in front and lit it as you ran. See how the true gift never leaves the giver, Returned and re-delivered, it rolled on until the smile poured through us like a river. How fine, I thought, this waking amongst men. I kissed your mouth and pledged myself forever.